Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we have someone from outside the blue bubbles of the East Coast and the West Coast with a very succinct message. President Trump has a very good chance of being reelected. Yes, he does. And our guest today is Matt Morrison. He's the executive director of Working America. That's a a labor-funded group that has been going door-to-door for months, having hundreds of thousands of conversations with working-class voters who, you know, kind of still like Trump. Today on the podcast, Matt explains why and what he's doing to try and sway them. Next on It's All Political, Matt Morrison from Working America. Matt Morrison, welcome to It's All Political from your offices in Washington, D.C. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on It's All Political. All right. So you're the executive director of Working America. That's like, it's, it's described as a community affiliate of the AFL-CIO, a major labor organization in the country. And you, you mobilize people in working class communities around the country. And uh, just to get this out of the way, you are funded in part by labor unions as well as individuals and others. And I have gone door to door with Working America canvassers in parts of uh, swing areas in Ohio and elsewhere around the country when I'm reporting. And uh, so you and your organization have spent tons and tons of time talking to voters in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan, uh, other parts of the alleged blue wall for Democrats. And you talk to uh, folks who voted for maybe voted for Obama once or twice and then voted for President Trump. And what we wanted to hear from you is sort of a reality check for uh, folks who live out here, maybe our core listeners in California and the Bay Area. You say President Trump, after talking to all these folks in this area, has a very good chance of being reelected. Give us a, tell us why and give us a little overview about what your organization does on the ground. Absolutely, and uh, that's a heck of a first question. Uh, <laughs> be the bearer of bad news right off the top. Yes. We, we, uh, it's called so, a tease to get people to listen to this. <laughs> well, you know, let me just give a, a little bit of context on how we do the work. Uh, Working America as the community organizing arm of the AFL-CIO has made it our mission to go door-to-door five nights a week, year-round, and listen first and then talk to working-class voters about the economy and how to engage them. The members that we're organizing aren't union members, and so we're going to their next-door neighbor's houses, and that's where we ground our perspective in. We have around a million or so face-to-face conversations uh, every year, all uh, concentrated in these types of battlegrounds. Uh, and so since the 2016 election, uh, since that, uh, that dreadful night, uh, November 8th, uh, I think we have turned our attention to how we go and listen very intently to where voters in northeastern Ohio uh, or south, uh, southeastern Michigan or western Pennsylvania or even uh, in the urban cores in each of those cities, to each of those states, are coming from. The top takeaway is, one, voters say uh, no one is fighting for them. And that's across race, across geography. What you're seeing consistently, and this is a sample size of over 5,000 interviews across dozens of states, where we start to see uh, voters say, I can't name anyone in the political system who actually has my back. 
No when one. you look at that and then no one, that's the number one answer. Uh, and that, that's, that's somewhat profound. When you think about it, working class people just don't see themselves reflected in the political process. Now, that's not to say that uh, there is no one who actually is representing their interests. It's, it is to say, however, they don't see it. And if you don't see it, you don't believe it uh, in politics. So let me tell you what it is we have been uh, hearing since we've uh, engaged in these conversations. Uh, the first thing I would say is that Democrats, true blue Democrats who vote in Democratic primaries, who are committed to the Democratic candidate, but live in these very red parts of the country are scared. When we surveyed uh, these very voters and asked, you know, how likely do you think your candidate is to win, uh, whoever the Democratic nominee is, uh, uh, the presidential election in 2020, you get less than 40% of Democrats saying, yeah, I feel really good about my prospects of winning or our team's prospects of winning. If you compare that to what you hear from Trump voters, uh, almost 90% of them feel very confident about his re-election prospects. And so that gives you a sense of what the community level uh, zeitgeist is in places like Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why do you think that uh, from what you're seeing on the ground, from what you're hearing on the ground, that Trump has a good chance of being reelected? What is what he's well, done I mean, or what's the perception is that he has done for folks? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think we got to start from where we were uh, two plus years ago. Trump was reelected, well, excuse me, was elected, I should say, um, largely on a bedrock of support from traditional Republican voters. Ninety percent of his vote came from people who voted for Mitt Romney and John McCain before him. And so that's his starting point. What was so unexpected and so remarkable was that he made so much headway beyond that, particularly with these white working class voters, um, as well as a, a disaffected uh, a voter of color community that decided, I'd rather not participate. What, when you look at um, how he campaigned, he called Mexicans rapists, um, insulted a federal judge's impartiality, uh, you know, called for a Muslim man, like you name it the kind of offensive, outrageous things that he did before he was elected means that all of the offensive and outrageous things he's done since he's been elected really are no surprise. So he's not losing voters because of Russia. I don't think, sad to say, he's losing voters because of child separations at the border. He, I'm sorry, he, so he, he is or is not because of the child separations? He is not. Is not, okay. He is not losing voters because of that. Of, of this, in this universe this, that you're at, in. okay. Exactly, and so I mean, if you start from a place of these voters had an economic interest, an identity that they didn't see reflected in uh, the Democratic candidate, and Trump uh, put aside the substance of what he's actually achieved, uh, the rhetoric speaks directly at them. So the saber rattling with China on um, uh, renegotiated trade agreement or his efforts at uh, fixing NAFTA, uh, that, when you come connect it with what actually has been something of an improvement in uh, uh, wages and employment levels, especially in these smaller smaller towns uh, that have been decimated for the last 40 years. Now, it's a deep hole to dig out of, but you can't beat something with nothing. So I think the first thing is people already uh, uh, discounted for a lot of um, his outrageous antics 
second and perhaps more profound challenge is the mechanisms for delivering information to these communities have fundamentally broken down. There's actually been a fair amount of research. I think UNC has done uh, one of the most authoritative versions of this, showing the proliferation of media deserts. These are counties uh, where there is no source of local information. The type of content that allows you to digest uh, what um, what a tax cut policy really means for you, how the trade uh, uh, negotiations negotiations are really working, what it means to try to repeal health care uh, for tens of millions of people. They're not getting the substance and the nuance of that, so all they get is talking points. And my God, does the man that owns the airwaves. If you, um, uh, Television News Archives did an analysis uh, uh, counting how much of the cable news hours go to mentioning Donald Trump versus uh, how much went to mentioning Barack Obama. Trump is getting roughly fourfold uh, the, the level of uh, airtime that Barack Obama got. It's not all positive, but that means that that means that that's that much less time for any other information to get out. A counter narrative to get out is being uh, suffocated by just his dominance on the air. Well, the media stuff is fascinating. We're gonna we'll unpack that in a second. I want to go back to some of the some of the things that you're hearing that voters care about and what they don't care about. So, start with the you know the 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 saber rattling on China. Um, some of the the folks that you're talking to, maybe either they be, uh, they might be affected by tariffs on steel and such. Don't they? Do they feel that their economic interest is being hurt, um, or do they just like the what what Trump is saying and how he's saying it? How do, how does that? How do those two? You know, it sounds like they'd be at odds with each other. Meaning, um, you're getting a little bit of both. I'll, I'll give you an, uh, an example of what I mean by that. Uh, we were active in the Pennsylvania 18 special election about a year and a half ago. That's the Connor Lamb race, uh, where Lamb picked up a Trump plus 20 seat, uh, a big uh, feather in the cap for Democrats. Yes. And you may recall that Trump, during the middle of that campaign, he could see which way the winds were blowing, and he strategically announced his first tariff on steel. Uh we're tracking Trump's approval along with candidate support throughout this race, and you saw immediately there was a huge surge around a plus 20-point swing in terms of Trump approval and in the shape of the race as soon as he made that announcement. But about three or four days later, the numbers start to even out, and they come back down to the level they were at previously. When we ask voters and we ask the organizers what's going on, what we are hearing back from the voters is, you know, that's not the kind of steel we make around here. Now, that's a really sophisticated uh, political and economic analysis coming from working class voters because people tend to know how they eat. That said, you know, we do need to have uh, an ability to speak directly to these voters, to these communities. Um, you know, if you are living in the Bay Area, uh, chances are, to the extent they can afford it, your kids are not fleeing. Uh, for economic opportunity elsewhere. If you live in Cleveland, where the employment base has contracted by around 5% in the last decade, even though the population has grown, then your kids are not sticking around. You are seeing a community-level stress. And so the mere fact that someone is raising your agenda uh, and the, uh, the implications 
of uh, the, the impact, adverse impacts of uh, globalization and our uh, global trade regimes have had on those types of manufacturing hubs, that gives you credibility that Democrats who, you know, uh, I'm not going to pick on any Democrat in particular, but if you're giving speeches to Goldman Sachs um, and <laughs> you're saying that TPP is the gold standard, that feels completely inconsistent with the lived experience, as well as, quite frankly, with what we as the labor movement have been saying in these same communities for the last 40 years. Okay, so the fact that Trump is talking about these things and giving voice to the voice to these concerns, what people are really caring about day to day is resonated. Um, so did you see, you probably saw this poll that came out a couple of days ago, Quinnipiac poll uh, in Pennsylvania that says Biden is leading Trump 53-42. Uh, even some of the others are, are leading him. Uh, Bernie Sanders is 50-43 uh, over Trump. Warren is is beating Trump and Kamala Harris and Buttigieg and uh, Beto O'Rourke are about split with him does that does that what it seems like uh, democrats are getting traction here or is this just a, a weird snapshot or what do you make of that well i mean i the first thing i would make of it is that at this point in the last cycle trump hadn't even entered the race and as we closed in on election day while you didn't have as stark numbers you had pretty clear numbers suggesting a robust lead now some of that was you know challenges with how surveys were conducted, uh, absolutely, undoubtedly. Some of it is you got to figure out who the electorate is. Um, one of the things that we saw happen at kind of a profound level in the last election was that if you look at, say, the blue wall states, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, 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 Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Hillary Clinton got about 1.1 million fewer votes than uh, Barack Obama did in out of those four states from the 2012 election. Eighty percent of that vote loss came uh, from rural counties. And so a, a huge chunk of the electorate just demobilized. You, you didn't even see it. At the same time, uh, there was a significant mobilization on Trump's part. And if nothing else, this man has been feeding his base. He also has more time, more money, and more discipline to aim at mobilizing that base. I don't want to make it sound like the guy's a shoo-in, and I think Democrats actually have a very credible path to prevailing here, but I, I do think that there's a little bit of happy talk going on that this is not going to be the fight of our of our lives. It's somewhat existential, I'd say. Uh, so if there's, uh, if he does, Democrats do have a credible path, but what are Trump's chances? Well, I mean, if you ask Odd Shark, they're giving him, what, a 58% win probability. So people who bet money on this stuff are feeling pretty good about his prospects. If I look down to the, the kind of community level, um, you know, there, we were we were on doors in Columbus, Ohio, uh, not long ago, uh, talking to African-American voters about why there was such a stark drop in voter participation. Uh, and this one very long time, very consistent voter, a uh, black woman named Carol, uh, she's in her late 50s, and she had recently lost her job. And she says, you know, it doesn't even matter. Like, no one's going to make a difference around here. We started the call talking about that, or started the, the show talking about that. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, uh, uh, the, the reason that uh, uh, Democrats come into the electorate uh, or, or stay
stay home is because they see something in it for themselves, just like any other voter does. Uh, and so you got to give people a reason to come into this process and to believe. If I'm Trump, I have to win Ohio. I have to win Pennsylvania. I have to win Michigan. I have to win Wisconsin. Uh, and I can't lose ground in any of the, um, the Sunbelt uh, uh, states or southeastern states. So he's got a very specific path to reelection, uh, but it's still a very credible path. Speaking of uh, African-American voters, there is uh, two schools of thought, in the, at least two schools of thought in the Democratic Party and, and in, among the activist community. There's some folks are saying that the party and uh, all of its uh, supporters should spend less time focusing on these working class white voters in the in these swing states, these heartland swing states who voted for Trump. They say, like, you know what? Forget them. We're, we're not going to win them back. We should the party and others should focus more time and money on reassembling the Obama coalition and bringing in new uh, voters of color in places like Georgia and Arizona. What do you think about this? And is uh, is this a valid argument? It's certainly an understandable argument. I'm not sure that the math on it holds up. And here's what I mean. Uh, we just talked about the path for Donald Trump's election prospects, and, and quite frankly, Democrats have to foreclose that path, whoever the Democratic nominee is. The If you look at a Pennsylvania, if you look at an Ohio, if you look at a Michigan, well over half of the electorate are non-college-educated white voters. How do you win that state or any of those states unless you do well within those populations? Uh, I've spent some time in Georgia, Arizona, and other states myself, and I would love, love, love to see the type of ascendant um, uh, multiracial progressive coalition that many of us long for. The math on how you actually get there, though, is more than just a notion. We haven't won Georgia or Arizona in a presidential election in quite some time. So let's not you know, kind of bet the farm uh, on narrowing our path uh, for a demographic coalition that we just haven't been able to galvanize yet. Mm -hmm. the, the truth of the matter is that the type of spade work that, say, Stacey Abrams has been doing, she didn't just run for governor. She's been doing this base yes. building work for years. Uh, it is what's needed. And you need it on steroids going into a presidential election when every uh, Republican voter is already going to be in the electorate. And the share of non-voters, uh, say, African-American non-voters that you can bring into the electorate dwindles dramatically because every turnout is up uh, so high at that level. So I would say this, as a math proposition and a political proposition, like we shouldn't be doctrinaire that way. We should actually think about what it takes to win. But I want to take this a step further because I think there's a morally compelling issue here. What type of country do we think we will live in if we say forget half of the country or much of uh, the industrial Midwest and leave it to this type of right-wing, aspiring Nazi uh, uh, approach that we're seeing from the current Republican politics in this country, where there's um, good people on both sides of uh, hate fest, hate festivals in Charlottesville. Like, we do not want to live in that country, uh, and the only way to stop that is to actually build bridges so that the agenda that is affecting um, 
dislocated uh, GM workers in Lordstown, Ohio, uh, who are losing their job because of, uh, of, of uh, Trump's uh, tax policy in part, uh, is the same type of investment that gets Carol to see, hey, there is an economic future for myself, for my family, for my community. The policy solutions and the common agenda, those two things can happen together. There is nothing, and I'm going to take it a step further and say, how does a Democrat do that? There's nothing in our experience that says that a candidate who says that Black Lives Matter can't also say that a broad-based economic prosperity matters as well. You can say both. We just need candidates willing to do both. Mm-hmm. Do you see any, I know you, you don't, uh, you guys don't endorse candidates, but do you see any candidate who is doing that right now? You know, I see actually quite a few candidates that are doing that right now. I, I will say that um, I'm not going to start naming names because there's at least 48 uh, Democrats running for president. Uh, yes. I may have my math off. Maybe it's 49 by now. It's, it's, it's by the time this posts, it'll be 52. Uh, exactly. But, but you say that there I, are I, a I number of candidates who are doing that. And so that shouldn't be an issue this time around. You know, I'll, I'll be curious. I, 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 if I could predict the future, I, I would. We have to get the nominee. We have to see how they campaign. I think there's enormous pressures, especially if we don't have a nomination settled until next summer, uh, to focus in on the base, to mobilize and energize the base. And at that point, Trump is doing all he can to try to galvanize support amongst these white working class voters uh, uh, so that they're not even listening. So, yeah, I mean, I would hope that that's the case, but... uh, you know, these are still Democrats we're talking about. And um, speaking of uh, Lordstown, Ohio, the congressman from Eastern Ohio, one of the congressmen from Eastern Ohio, uh, Tim Ryan, who is one of the 57 people running, Democrats running for president, said the other day that Trump is, quote, punching China in the face with tariffs, while, quote, the leading candidate on our side is saying China is not even an issue. And he's referring to uh, Vice President Biden. Uh, Ryan uh, continued, if we go into the election with that as our message, we'll get beat again. Is that accurate? Wow, that's cold-blooded, man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, so you've got um, a competing candidate critiquing the frontrunner. I will say, if you were in Youngstown, we were um, just on doors in Youngstown, just down the road. Excuse me, if you're in Lordstown and we're just on the road in Youngstown down the road, uh, from Lordstown, what he's saying there is, is spot on. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a reason that he's done so well in that district. He understands it um, to a fairly well. Mm-hmm. The, the challenges of uh, how we are faring in an increasingly automated economy, an increasingly globalized economy, um, are bigger than just pointing to a boogeyman. It can't just be, hey, let's punch China in the face. The Democrat is going to have to go well beyond that and say, how are we going to meaningfully compete with China for kind of that mid-economy, um, family-sustaining wage that is broadly sh- uh, wage employment that's broadly uh, dispersed throughout the economy, uh, demographically, geographically, etc. And so, um, you know, I. I uh, candidates will say a lot of things about each other in the course of this. I'm not going to 
uh, buttress one candidate to yeah. uh, uh, knock another. But I will say that, you know, if you don't have solutions that actually answer the underlying problem, uh, then Trump punching China in the face and you're saying, oh, yeah, uh, we got uh, uh, um, uh, crickets, you're not, you, gotta, you, you can't beat something with nothing. So you have to come back and say and answer that and, and with, with strong rhetoric and some policy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but I mean, let, let me um, refer back to the Connor Lamb example I shared earlier. Mm. Once it gets down to the level of how am I going to eat, what, uh, what job am I going to, I mean, no one pulls the classifieds anymore to look for jobs, but yes. what job am I going to tell my kid to go online to search for, or what's the next job for me so I can move from this $12 an hour uh, uh, wage to an $18 an hour wage? Like, that is the point that people are looking to engage with because most folks, you know, present company excluded, don't pay attention to politics on a regular basis. They pay attention to their own lives. And so you got to get into their own lives uh, in a more meaningful way. And as you say, uh, there a lot of these places where you're at, where you're, where you're talking to voters have become media deserts. They're the, the most Trump voters, uh, as you said, get uh, you cite in your, some of your research get their news from TV, and, and of course that's been uh, shown in else, elsewhere. Uh, a lot of these small towns uh, no longer either no longer have newspapers, or they've been uh, severely cut because of uh, financial reasons. Um, so there hasn't been, a, you know, they're getting their news from partisan TV sources. Um, so. Do these voters, these voters aren't tuned in to what most people in Washington are talking about. They don't, they don't give a crap about impeachment or uh, that, that Trump uh, likely paid uh, hush money to a porn star he had an affair with. That, they don't really care about those issues, correct? Well, I mean, let me be clear. When you talk about Trump paying hush money to a porn star he had an affair with, people's ears perk up on that. Yeah. Now, whether or not <laughs> they make it a voting issue is a whole other right, story. Right, right, right. <laughs> Good point. They followed, <laughs> but they don't. No. But that it's not. A, it's not something that's going to swing their vote one way or the other. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, it's really just that straightforward. Right. Um, and uh, again, because most of us behave as those around, as we perceive those around us behaving, and so if you add to that a really robust and kind of long-term right-wing strategy to go to smaller communities that are more likely to suffer from these media deserts, um, it would look to most people like, hey, everyone around me is heading in this direction, um, and I'm hearing nothing to say why not except for my personal values. Uh, maybe it's not such a bad uh, direction to go in. Uh, so that, that's the danger of the media desert. And you have found that the issue that resonates, and this is, again, from your extensive going long conversations with voters, you establish relationships with them uh, both online and in person, health care is the issue to win on for Democrats, correct? You know, actually, it really it is, and it uh, translates that way really well nationally. But I want to unpack that for just a second, because health care is an indicator. It's a symbol of economic uncertainty. If you are trying to maintain, what, it, what we're talking about is um, folks, by and large, are confronting rising living costs, uh, but they aren't seeing the scale
scale of rising wages to offset those living costs. You know, most working, most Americans haven't had um, a meaningful raise in over 40 years. The health care is a really um, kind of emblematic example of what that looks like as costs continue to climb. I think we're at, what, 19% or so of GDP right now uh, are consumed by health care costs. So people are feeling that pressure, broadly speaking. But I bet uh, for a lot of working class listeners in uh, your region, that translates as housing costs. When we were in, uh, we, we ran the ground game uh, for about a year and a half leading up to the last election in California 10. And, you know, you're way that's out. A, that's Modesto. a congressional uh, district in uh, Central Valley around Modesto. For our listeners. That's right. Yes. Uh, Josh Harder, the Democrat, unseated uh, Jeff Denham, a longtime Republican yes. uh, in that seat. But you're, uh, I mean, depending on uh, time of day, traffic, et cetera, that's about two hours from the San Francisco Bay Area. And people are feeling the price pressures from the Bay Area on their housing prices. Mm-hmm. So guess what pops there? Housing prices as the top concern. If you mm-hmm. are in um, Maricopa County, uh, a state where uh, the level of disinvestment in public education is so notorious that the massive red for ed teacher strikes uh, really just kind of animated the, have animated the state's politics for the last year. What you're hearing, and I saw this for myself, I, I walked in a trailer park and I was knocking on doors of largely uh, Latino women mothers. Every single one of them said to me, my top concern is getting after school help for my kids. Mm-hmm. This is Arizona. No one was, yeah, this is in Arizona. But they weren't talking to each other or exerting any type of meaningful power because they, no one had ever said, hey, this is how we can organize and change that outcome. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest that, yeah, healthcare it, it, it's it's a useful uh, shorthand for economic stress that uh, working people are feeling. If you can frame the discussion around economic stress and how you're alleviating economic stress, that bodes very, very well for Democrats. And what states will you be focusing on uh, over the uh, in the 2020 cycle in the presidential race? Well, you know, uh, taking a step back, uh, 2019 comes before 2020, and so 2019 gives us a couple of opportunities to do some things that are particularly important. Um, Virginia has legislative elections. I know everyone in uh, California is deeply invested in those legislative elections on the opposite side of the country. But the reason this is important is that this is going to be the the round of elections that control redistricting. And we've got to dig ourselves out of the structural hole that allowed Republicans to control the House of Representatives for nearly a decade. And Kentucky is having a gubernatorial race that, while it is little noticed uh, by the national press, you've seen recent articles uh, coming out of Politico and elsewhere that the Trump team is getting awfully anxious uh, about uh, what this signals, because if uh, Trump ally Matt Bevin loses that governor's race, then all bets are off. There, there is no place that is safe uh, uh, for Republicans. So I, I just like to put in a small 2019 plug. Okay, we will be watching. Okay, in, in terms of our map for uh, the next uh, few years, so at the top level, our, our our priorities have to be where you have the highest probability of changing outcomes in the presidential election. That's going to be Pennsylvania. That's going to be Michigan. Uh, That's going to be Arizona. That's going to be North Carolina. But there are other states that don't often get mentioned the same way, but they need to be in that conversation. Uh, And so Minnesota 
a great example of a state that um, Hillary Clinton got, what, 50% of the vote there, and but for the third-party candidacy, uh, uh, that state would have flipped the other way. Iowa, which people largely focus on for purposes of the um, uh, uh, caucuses, uh, actually has a U.S. Senate seat up, and it had the largest single-state swing from going for Obama to Trump between 12 and 16. Um, in addition to that, uh, Georgia and Ohio uh, are critical states for us, uh, and Wisconsin will continue to get a fair bit of attention. But for us, you know, it's worth, it's both about um, the map, but it's also about the math. Uh, and so we're able to, you know, we do a lot of research to support our work, as does everyone. Uh, but having had the benefit of um, 11 plus million face-to-face -face conversations with voters, uh, so you, you have a, a pretty good store of knowledge and data points on where they're truly coming from and what it looks like longitudinally. Also having the benefit of um, hundreds of clinical measures of how we're impacting voter behavior, what we have started to see is that there's, a, there's an archetype of a voter that if you engage them, you can change how they vote and whether or not they vote, not just in a single election, but for a long time to come. And so some of the, 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 high, the value in places like Arizona and in, in um, Michigan and in Pennsylvania and North Carolina and so forth is that you have, certainly have near-term electoral outcomes, but the same way that, um, and Joe, you're, uh, I, I think your listeners probably know that uh, you're as old as I am. Uh, so uh, <laughs> We like to keep it a mystery here on the podcast. I'm actually, you are old I'm actually 22. All right, well then, so I'm going to give you a little history lesson. Then. All right. You remember back in 2000 when Washington, Oregon, and New Mexico uh, were battlegrounds and no one dared dreamt of Colorado as a blue state um, and Virginia was uh, just like part of the Confederacy? Yes. See? So um, you're, you're a good student or uh, an old guy. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, it's, but that's the, the the thing is that is changing, and that's that. So we should not be we should not be locked into or voters should make sure that the the map is not a fixed thing. Things change, and with some with some elbow grease, and with some hard work, you can convince people. Not you know this isn't the time for small dreams, brother. This is the time to go very big mm -hmm. because you know the pendulum swung one way with Trump's election. We have a chance to accelerate this thing back the other way um, at a million miles an hour. And so if we are able to put the elbow grease into the blue wall states, the new south states, think of what a map looks like where Democrats start from a structural advantage of 270 electoral votes already. What does that mean for the U.S. Senate? What does it mean for governance? Uh, so this, isn't the, this is the time to actually go very big, is what I would suggest. All right. Uh, and Matt, one to, if you have one thing to say about Trump's, uh, the possibility, we'll close with this, the, uh, the, that Trump very well could be elected. Your message to the folks living in the blue bubbles, where they think, oh, my God, this guy, how could this guy ever be reelected? You're saying, yes, it's very possible he could be. I mean, I'm <laughs> Joe, you set me up. You opened up with a hard question, and you're closing me out on being the uh, 
You're, you're, you're going to be the voice of doom here. Come on. You, you're, you're talking to these voters. You know, I mean, this is serious. This is very serious. I, I would say that um, if nothing were to change from today, I would give them a better than likely probability of being reelected and winning a uh, pretty clear majorities in places like Pennsylvania and, and, and Michigan um, and, and, and Wisconsin and the like. So we do have to be clear-eyed about what we're up against. If you look at the historic trend of where his approval numbers are now versus uh, past presidents, he's on pace for winning around 49% of the vote. That's more than he won when he was elected. Mm. So, yeah, we, we need to be sober about this. Now, the good news is we do have some time. Now, the challenge, of course, is that uh, folks you know, tend to wait until the nominations are all settled, and then they kick in and say, oh, yeah, it's Labor Day of election year. That's how we get this work done. Donald Trump is on the ground right now. Uh, he, he started his reelection committee um, before he was inaugurated. And so they've been steady work, steadily working because they know they, they only have one path to reelection. Uh, and so we have to, you know, as folks, and I, I do happen to live in a big blue bubble myself, um, uh, being on the East Coast, we, we have to actually orient ourselves to the scale of work it's going to take to make sure that uh, we foreclose his path. Um, and that means even before we have a candidate who can lead the charge in helping us do that. All right. Matt Morrison, thanks so much for being on It's All Political. Good to talk to you. Well, it's, Joe, It's All Political is my new favorite podcast. Oh, thank God, you for having We're going to use that as a plug. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Matt Morrison for joining us on the program today from Washington, D.C. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing this podcast as beautifully as she always does. And remember, whether you're voting for Trump or not, it's all political. It's All Political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.